making our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians. So I encourage you to have your Bibles with you in those message notes and a pen or pencil as we continue our study through Colossians. As most of you know, I live in a household where I am way outnumbered. Christine, my wife, and I have four daughters, and so I live in our wonderful home with my wife and four girls. Even our dog is female, and so it's not very difficult at times for me to be the man of the house because I'm the only man in the house. Uh, We had a tortoise up until a few months ago, and the tortoise only lasted in our household about two and a half years. I I think the estrogen was too much for him to handle. Uh, But anyway, uh, when... uh, (laughs) When I live in a household full of ladies, as you might guess, uh, some of the TV shows and movies that I watch are not exactly manly. Chick flicks are are fairly common in our household, and uh, one of those we were watching last Sunday that wasn't particularly manly was the newest episode of When Calls the Heart on the Hallmark Channel. So this show on the Hallmark Channel tells the story of a town in the early 20th century, right after the turn of uh, about 1905, I think is where it's staged, a little sleepy town called Coal Valley in Canada uh, that experiences tragedy and triumph, and I think they're in season four or five now of this show on Hallmark. And in this particular episode, uh, which I I hate to admit it, I kind of like the series, it's kind of grown on me, but uh, this this, show that came out last Sunday, the latest episode, Uh, shows this stranger coming into town with his horse and buggy. And uh, he's got this wagon that he's pulling with his horse. And he goes to a prominent place in town, and he proceeds to open the side flaps of that wagon to reveal all of his wonderful, miraculous elixirs that he was selling. And so as the people came, he was telling them all the wonderful things these little elixirs in these small bottles can do. Uh, They can cure stomach aches. They can help you with your heart issues. If you've got it, this little medicine can cure it. He's what we call a snake oil salesman. These snake oil salesmen were prolific in the 1800s across the American frontier. These guys were all over the place. They would travel far and wide across the frontier, going from town to town, opening up the sides of their wagons. And these guys, when they stood on their crate and started talking, these guys could sell ice to an Eskimo. They were marvelous, genius salesmen. They were wonderful at marketing. And they would have people eating out of the palms of their hands, people that were poor, giving up their last dollar to buy this elixir that they were convinced would cure them of their diseases. You know what, snake oil, snake oil salesmen are a real problem when you don't have much money and you've got a physical ailment that you're dealing with. But they're a much bigger problem when you have the snake oil salesmen peddling cheap religion. And that's what we find happening with the church of Colossae. And that's one of the main reasons Paul wrote this letter and one of the main reasons that he wrote chapter 2 specifically. Because some of these religious snake oil salesmen were starting to infiltrate the Colossian church. And so as we look at chapter 2 today, this is going to be a very important message, not just to understand what was going on then, but to better understand how we can deal 
with the religious snake oil salesmen that come our way today. So please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. If you're borrowing one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 1166. Uh, The rest of you open to Colossians chapter 2. As we look at this chapter today, we've got a lot of ground to cover, but one of the main things we'll focus on are these three human philosophies that Paul shares with the church there in Colossae. There's three human philosophies that are are very common uh, in the church. And these philosophies are are peddled by individuals that will come and say, you know what, your Christianity is good, but if you carry out this human philosophy, it will make your good Christianity even better. And so Paul basically in chapter 2 says, beware of these religious snake oil salesmen peddling human philosophy that takes your eyes off of Jesus Christ. Because whenever we take our eyes off of Christ, bad things happen. Amen? So today's message is steer clear of the snake oil from Colossians chapter 2. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your passage. We know it was written by the Apostle Paul, but he wrote it as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. God, we believe you spoke to Paul's mind and heart. And Lord, you even worked through his pen as he he put these words on paper. Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us through your word today and help us to stand firm in the faith. And most of all, help us to keep our eyes fixed squarely on Jesus Christ alone. And all God's people said, Amen. Colossians chapter 2, say Amen if you're there. Here we go, starting in verse 1. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. In the final two verses of chapter 1, we saw last week that Paul shared with us that one of his primary purposes as a minister of Jesus Christ, one, one of his greatest priorities is to struggle on behalf of the church. And I mentioned to you that this word struggle is a translation of a Greek word that was commonly used in the Greek Olympic Games in Paul's day. This was a word that they would use of boxers as that boxer was struggling to finish the fight and to best his opponent. It was a word used of wrestlers as they would struggle to pin his opponent to the mat. A word used of those in a foot race struggling to cross the finish line first. And so Paul picking up on what he has said in the final verses of chapter 1, continues this idea of the struggle in the opening verses of chapter 2. Paul is struggling like that Olympic athlete would struggle. He struggled for the Christians in prayer. He struggled for them in his decision making. And even here in chapter 2, as he teaches them some truths that they desperately needed to hear, he is struggling to teach them what they need to know so they can stand strong in the faith and not be duped by the religious snake oil salesman. He's struggling for them. And so as we study chapter 2 today, just bear in mind that this chapter is the result of a struggle. Because Paul cares about them, and he cares about us. 
Paul mentions Laodicea in verse 1. We talked about Laodicea briefly a couple weeks ago. Uh, Laodicea was one of the best-known towns in the region where Colossae was located. It was a much better-known town than Colossae. It was a much uh, more wealthy and, and influential town than Colossae. And so Paul makes it clear here that this letter he wrote to the Colossians, he wanted them to read carefully. He wanted them to internalize the truths he's saying in this letter. But as soon as they did that, he wanted them to pass this letter on to the church in Laodicea because the same things he says to the Colossians, he wanted to say to them. And so this is a letter that didn't simply go to the Colossians. It went to the Christians in Laodicea as well. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Paul writes, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. His purpose for what? His purpose for writing this letter to the Colossians and the Laodiceans. He wanted them to be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. This is a great chapter. And these verses, I just want to touch on them briefly, but they're so good. It's a mouthful what he says in verses 2 and 3, but basically he's saying that he's struggling for the Christians he's writing to so that they may be encouraged and united in their pursuit of the greatest treasure in the universe. And what, according to Paul here in these verses, is the greatest treasure in the universe? Jesus Christ, isn't it? That's why he's struggling. That's why he's encouraging them. That's why he's asking them to be united so that together they can pursue the greatest treasure in the history of the world, Jesus Christ himself. Some false teachers were starting to infiltrate the church and teach the Colossian Christians that there was some secret knowledge or some secret wisdom that most Christians didn't know about. And if you'll just sit under my tutelage, if you'll just listen to my teaching, I will reveal this secret knowledge to you. I'll reveal this secret wisdom to you. And you are going to be enlightened and you, with your knowledge, are going to blow those other Christians away. And they were coming in and duping them with this idea that there was a secret wisdom or knowledge outside of Jesus Christ. In fact, this was really the seedling of what we know a hundred years later was called Gnosticism. Gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge. And so this Gnosticism school became more of a formal uh, heresy in the second century. But here we find the seedlings beginning to grow and be planted. And so they were basically saying there's this knowledge and wisdom that you cannot find with just Jesus Christ. You need something a little extra. But Paul makes it clear that when it comes to knowledge, all true knowledge can only be found in Jesus Christ. And when it comes to wisdom, all true wisdom can only come and be found in Jesus Christ. And so once again, Jesus Christ is all you need. Can you say amen to that church? Jesus Christ is all you need. In fact, anyone who comes to you, Paul basically says, anyone who comes to you claiming to have special spiritual knowledge or wisdom outside of Christ is peddling snake oil. Look at what Paul says in verse 4. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by what? Fine-sounding arguments. These guys aren't coming with a cheap sales pitch that's unconvincing. They're coming with some product that is just immediately apparent as as false and no good. 
They're coming with fine-sounding arguments. Paul says, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Whether it was in Paul's day in Asia or today in the United States, those who peddle spiritual snake oil tend to be geniuses at marketing. It's one of the most important things I want you to internalize in this message today. Those who peddle religious snake oil are geniuses at marketing. I want to give you a quick example of one of that examples of marketing today on something that is snake oil. God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost, agency, making mistakes, forgiveness, grace, mercy, love, unconditional love, repentance, redemption, resurrection, scriptures, the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Book of Mormon, old prophets, living prophets, inspiration, baptism, by immersion, singing hymns, Temples, marriage, obedience, being good, good husbands, good fathers, good mothers, good daughters, good sons, good neighbors, good citizens, helping others, serving others, lifting others, welcoming others, big families, small families, the human family, eternal families, genealogy, laughter, minivans, hard work, the Sabbath day, church, activities, Miracles, honesty, integrity, chastity, caring for our bodies, imperfections, charity, compassion, joy, joy, joy. As you can tell from the web address at the end of that uh, promotional video, it's put on by the Mormon Church. That's why it's a Mormon.org at the end of that. And so you think about the words used in this little commercial, mercy, grace, unconditional love, redemption, resurrection, New Testament, Old Testament, baptism, good husbands, good fathers, good mothers, good citizens, serving others, hard work, chastity, compassion, and joy. And I want to say, sign me up! The Mormons sound amazing, don't they? I agree with everything there except that one little guy that said Book of Mormon. I agree with all of that stuff. Sign me up. It sounds wonderful. All of these characteristics used to describe Mormonism are biblical, right? Except for the Book of Mormon one. All the others are biblical, right? Come on, you can answer it. It's not a loaded question. All of those sound good, right? All of those sound wonderful, right? Yeah, I agree with pretty much all of that stuff. But there's a problem. All of those characteristics you just heard to describe Mormonism have absolutely nothing to do with the core of Mormon teaching. Nothing. They have nothing to do with the core of Mormon teaching. It's really just smoke and mirrors. You see, at the core of Mormon teaching is that God really isn't the God of the Bible. It's true. The Mormon God is not eternal. He was created and over time was promoted to Godhood along with millions of other gods in the universe. At the core of Mormon teaching isn't the Old Testament and the New Testament, but three other books that always take precedence over the Bible. At the core of Mormon teaching isn't grace or mercy or unconditional love, but required good works and conditional love. The core of Mormon theology is summarized by its founder, Joseph Smith, in this short quote. 
Joseph Smith said, As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. In other words, if you are a man, sorry ladies, if you are a man and do what the Mormon church teaches you to do, you will one day become like God. That sounds awfully familiar. Someone in the Bible said that, and it wasn't someone on God's side. Mormonism is not Christianity. Now, I don't use this word, I don't throw it around very commonly, but it does fit the Mormon church. The Mormon church is a cult. It's a non-Christian cult. But do you realize how many millions of Christians have been lured into Mormonism because they bought the slick sales pitch? They were deceived. They somehow missed the truth that in Jesus Christ, not the Mormon church, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They bought in the age-old lie that Jesus Christ is not enough. And so Paul writes in verse 4, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Let's continue on in verse 6. Paul writes, For this reason... Let me get to the right chapter. <laughs> so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overcoming with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ. Oh, I love that verse. You have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In Him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and what stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These were a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together uh, with ligaments and sinews, grows as God calls it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, that's a lot of ground to cover, but we'll hit some highlights here. Beginning in verse 16, Paul exposes three human philosophies that over the past 2,000 years have pulled millions of Christians' eyes off of Christ. 
We'll get to those three human philosophies here in a moment, but I'll point out some things between verses 6 and 16. Take another look at verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. In other words, Paul is saying, when you were saved, when you got saved, you trusted Christ 100% for salvation, right? Right? You trusted Him 100% for salvation. And you understood, Paul says, what I wrote in verse 3, right? That in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if your salvation was all about Christ and Christian growth is all about Christ, then make sure that your entire spiritual lives are all about Christ. Sink your spiritual roots down deep into Him and Him alone. Build up your faith in Him and Him alone. Be thankful that everything you have is a blessing from His hands and your answers and your solutions and your sustenance is all found in Him. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Eureka. You find Jesus Christ, you've hit the jackpot, haven't you? The absolute jackpot. Don't waste your time looking elsewhere, Paul says. Look again at verse 8. Paul writes in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through what? Hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Never forget that false teachers are marketing geniuses. Their religious products sound so, so good, but at the core they're nothing but hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends on the stuff of this world, not on the stuff of eternity. Verses 9 through 15 are so good also. I'll just touch on a few things in those verses. Verse 9 nicely summarizes one of the main points Paul makes in chapter 1 about Jesus Christ. He is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He is the fullness of God in the flesh. Therefore, verse 10, our spiritual fullness can only come in Him. That makes sense, doesn't it? If Jesus is the fullness of God, then our fullness could only be found in Christ. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. In those two verses, false teachers, Paul says, may try to convince you that man-made religion and traditions can keep your sinful nature in check. But Paul basically says it's just snake oil. Those things of human tradition and, and human strategies cannot keep the sinful nature in check. Only Jesus can do that. Verses 13 through 15, you and I weren't just dying in our sin, we were dead. We saw last week that Paul was pointing out to us in chapter 1 that we were alienated from God because of our sin. And because of our sin, we were enemies of God. And here he basically says, you also were dead to God. Now, we were in pretty bad shape because of our sin, weren't we? Anyone that says, you know what, my sin's not that big of a deal. You know what, God and I still got our thing going without Jesus. You know, they're full of it. Impossible. We're not just alienated from God. We're not just enemies of God. We're basically dead to God without Christ. Now, I love what he says in these verses that follow. Notice what he says there. Was it verse 15, if I remember right here? Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Paul is basically saying here, the cross of Jesus Christ shouts out, God loves you. 
and has offered you a way to be forgiven through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. But at the same time, the cross shouts out, In your face, Satan! Isn't Jesus Christ awesome? He shouts out love from the cross, but at the same time, Paul says he was kicking some celestial booty when he was on that cross. He was shoving it in Satan's face and says, In your face, Satan! Satan must have thought as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was crying out to God, let this cup pass from me. Satan must have thought he was about to win. And then the soldiers come and arrest Jesus and one of Jesus' own, Judas Iscariot, kisses him with a kiss of betrayal and Satan must have been loving it. And then they beat Jesus and they flog Jesus and they nail him to a cross and that cross is dropped down in that hole and that jarring effect of Jesus dropping on that cross gasping for breath as he's pushing him up to get one breath. And finally he dies, and Satan must have thought he had won the ultimate victory. But somewhere between Good Friday and Easter morning, the reality set in with the devil. Oops, I just got. What's even the word I can use? You pick your own word. We'll go with that. At some point between Good Friday and Easter, he realized he had lost big time. And not only had he not beaten Jesus Christ, the final nail was driven in his own coffin. Oh, Jesus Christ's crucifixion was amazing. Now, Paul points out, starting in verse 16, these three human philosophies that he does not want us to fall into because they're peddled by these religious snake oil salesmen. Human philosophy number one is legalism. We find that in verses 16 and 17. It's legalism. And here is the lie of legalism. Following rules will make you holy. That sounds pretty convincing, doesn't it? If I follow some strict rules, I'm going to live a holy life. Take another look at verses 16 and 17. This is a shorter version of Paul's teaching in Romans 14 and 15. Long story short, the false teachers who were infiltrating the Colossian church were peddling some legalism. And based on the examples that Paul gives in verse 16, it seems clear that they were peddling Jewish legalism. And so in Paul's day, Jews followed strict dietary laws. Most of us know that. But not only that, it seems clear that they also had added some laws against certain beverages. God doesn't restrict beverages in the Old Testament, but the Jews had added some of those. And so these uh, Jewish legalists were starting to infiltrate the Colossian church and saying, you can't eat that, you can't eat that. And on top of that, you can't drink this or drink that. They were introducing these strict dietary laws. Also, much of the Jewish life centered around their lunar calendar. So they were sticklers for observing certain new moon traditions and carrying out specific rituals on certain Sabbath days. So Paul says in uh, verse 16, don't let any false religious teachers come in and give you a guilt trip if you don't observe certain Jewish traditions. They're irrelevant to your salvation. And they're irrelevant to your Christian growth. And instead of helping you follow Christ better, they're actually taking your eyes off of Christ to focus on the rules and focus on the legalism. Verse 17 is absolutely brilliant. Paul says, these are a shadow of of the things that were to come. Their reality, however, is found in what? Not in in what, it's in in who, it's in Christ. Never forget this, all the religion of the Old Testament 
All the religion of Old Testament Judaism is a shadow cast by the New Testament Christ. If you understand that simple truth, it will help you understand so much about the Old Testament and how we're supposed to view it as New Testament Christians. You see, circumcision in the Old Testament was physical circumcision of the foreskin, but that was simply a shadow of Christ's circumcision of the heart, Paul says. The Old Testament laws were just a shadow of Christ's New Testament laws. So at its core, what is legalism's message? It's this. Push reality aside and return to the shadows. Well, I can't speak for you, but I say thanks, but no thanks. I have no desire to push reality aside and return to the shadow of Old Testament legalism. Do you? Many times it's hit me. Man, I am so glad that I am a New Testament pastor and not an Old Testament Jewish priest. I get to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful blessing. I don't have to lead you in, in, in a, the slaughter of lambs or goats or rams. What a horrible job to have. Every day, people coming to the altar, and I have to slit the throat of the little lamb and dump its blood over here and put its intestines there and you know, put the fat offering over here. And, and what a terrible thing to, to have to be that Old Testament priest where you, you take that bird from a poor person that couldn't afford the lamb and I grab that bird by the wings and I rip it in two from its wings and I take its head and twist it off and dump the blood out of its neck onto the altar. What a horrible, horrible way to serve the Lord in the clergy. I am so glad I'm a New Testament pastor. And these people that want to return to the shadows, to return to Old Testament legalism, you just want to ask them, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Those that want to put aside the grace and mercy and say, okay, I'm going to join the Jehovah's Witnesses and I'm going to no longer celebrate Christmas and I'm going to no longer celebrate Easter and I'm no longer going to celebrate my own children's birthdays. What a horrible way to live. And instead of celebrating Jesus Christ born to save the world on Christmas Day, I'll go knock on some doors and depress some more people. What a horrible way to live. Returning to the shadows when Jesus Christ has set us free. Paul says don't return to legalism. Human philosophy number two, he points out in verses 18 and 19. The second philosophy, we've got to be careful, we have to watch out for, it's mysticism. Mysticism. Mysticism's lie is this, pursuing visions and spirit guides will make you more spiritual. Pursuing visions and spirit guides will make you more spiritual. In verses 18 and 19, Paul shares uh, he identifies, I should say, this second vial of snake oil that the false teachers were peddling in Colossae. And first of all, says they delight in false humility. Think of that phrase, they delight in false humility. Even if you remove the word false, they delight in humility, you can tell that's not real humility. If someone is delighting in their humility, they're not really humble, are they? Think about it. You know what? I am thrilled, absolutely thrilled that I am so humble. I, I cannot begin to tell you how excited I am that I never pat myself on the back. As soon as I delight in my own humility, it's no longer humility. It's a sham, isn't it? He says these folks are coming in. They're delighting in their false humility. 
False humility goes hand in hand with mysticism that Paul refers to here. In Paul's day, these mystics rattled on about a vision that they had seen or some angel that had spoken to them or some out-of-body experience they had had. Today, in our day and age, mysticism takes a slightly different form. Today, mysticism is part of astrology, which is simply looking to the stars for answers instead of looking to the creator of those stars. Modern-day mysticism also includes Ouija boards and Dungeons and & Dragons and palm reading and tarot cards. All of this stuff takes our eyes off of Christ and draws them into the shadows. And Paul says, watch out for mysticism. Some Christians, especially in our younger years, tend to dabble in some of this stuff. Oh, I'm reading my astrological chart. It doesn't hurt anybody. You know, a Ouija board. Woo, the little thing moved in a certain direction. Eh, no big deal. It just gives us an adrenaline rush. Well, yeah, it is a big deal. We've got to be careful because this stuff can pull us into the shadows instead of keeping our eyes fixed on Christ. Human philosophy number three is asceticism. This is a word that's foreign to most of us, and I even looked it up this last week to make sure I was understanding what the word meant. Asceticism, that basically uh, is peddling this lie. Paul touches on this in verses 20 through 23. Asceticism uh, presses this lie that treating your body harshly will restrain your sinful nature. Treating your body harshly will restrain your sinful nature. This is a lie. This is very, very common in the Middle Ages that uh, many Christians, and it seemed to be men for whatever reason that did this more than the ladies, maybe because uh, women were too bright to get mixed up in this stuff, but uh, a lot of male aesthetics in uh, the uh, Christian church in the Middle Ages would do crazy stuff like laying on rock-hard beds, and you know they would wear like a, a nail board strapped to their back. Uh, they'd wear some scratchy underwear, you know, so it was super uncomfortable as they walked around. Any movement they made, you know, is just excruciating. Uh, these guys would go days on end without sleeping. There was major sleep deprivation. And, and so these guys in the Middle Ages, and to a lesser extent today, would torture their bodies, believing that if they tortured their body, it would tame the sinful nature. How well did it work out for those guys? Not so well. They were bloody and bruised and really, really tired, but their sinful nature was still not tamed. It didn't work. Why not? Because physical remedies can never cure a spiritual disease, can it? Physical remedies can never cure a spiritual disease. That doesn't mean that there's not a time and a place for staying up late in prayer. It doesn't mean there's not a time or place for fasting. But these things were always intended by God to point us to Christ, not take our eyes off of Christ. That's where asceticism backfires. The harsh treatment of the body becomes the focal point instead of Christ being the focal point. And as a result, as Paul writes in verse 23, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Well, that's chapter 2. And that's a lot to process in, in one message. So I want to make sure, because the content here is so important, I want to make sure that you have the tools necessary to stand strong in the faith without being hoodwinked by the next false teacher that comes peddling some religious snake oil. That false teacher may end up knocking on your front door. That false teacher may be there as you flip the channel on the TV and you catch a broadcast. Wherever that snake oil salesman is coming your way, I want you to be able to stand firm. And to be able to do so, I want to give you three questions 
Three simple questions that you can ask and answer to determine if someone is peddling snake oil to you. Question number one. You ready for this? Okay, get those pens ready. Question number one. Is this teaching firmly grounded in Christ's teaching in the New Testament? As this guy is telling me some things that are kind of new to my ears, and they sound pretty good, but I'm not quite sure, is he selling some teaching that lines up squarely with the teaching of Christ in the New Testament? If not, what do you do? You reject it. Question number two, does this teaching take my eyes off Christ? Does it take my eyes off? Am I chasing after the newest trend? in Christianity? Am I chasing after the newest philosophy in Christianity? If I'm taking my eyes off of Christ, what do I do? I reject it. Question number three, is the teacher walking the walk? This is so important. Sometimes what someone is teaching sounds good. There's some marvelous teachers on the TV and on radio. And by all means, I encourage you to listen to other pastors besides me. Listen to some of those great pastors and teachers out there. But every single one, myself included, you need to test with Scripture. Amen? Test them with Scripture. See if they're helping you take your eyes off of Christ or helping you to focus on Him more. Ask the question, are they walking the walk? If there is a teacher coming your way that is not living what they are preaching, you need to dismiss what they are saying. You must be walking the walk. I think the Apostle Peter summarizes Paul's warning in chapter 2 best and summarizes this wonderful truth about Jesus Christ. Look at this glorious verse in 2 Peter. In fact, I'd like us to read it together. Jesus Christ's divine power has given us every... What was that word again? Oh, that's right. Everything... Oh, everything. Okay. One more time, just to make sure. Okay, got it. I think I got it this time. Everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Those words are underlined for a reason. Jesus Christ can give us everything that we need in our spiritual lives. Amen? He can give us everything we need to grow in Him. Everything we need to overcome the challenges and problems that come our way. Everything we need to receive joy in our life and contentment and fulfillment and purpose. Everything. How can one man do all that because he's got the power, amen? He's got the divine power. How can he do that? Well, because he has life in himself so he can in turn give life. He has godliness so he can impart godliness. He has glory so He can pass on glory. He has goodness so He can help you grow in goodness. Let's thank Him right now together. Lord Jesus, we come to You as the one true God. The almighty, eternal, all-powerful God in human flesh. The whole concept of that just blows our minds. You are an awesome God, Lord Jesus. And we want to make this commitment to You today that we want to come to You each day as our sole 100% source of godliness. Come to You, Lord, as the source of growth, as the source of spiritual enrichment and nourishment. We want to come to You and You alone. Oh, Lord Jesus, we want to draw closer to You. And fix our eyes on You, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord Jesus, be with anyone here who's starting to be pulled away from You. And I pray that You would gently 
and lovingly, or if necessary, harshly, do what it takes to get our eyes fixed on you once again. Lord Jesus, you are our everything. You're all that we need. Your love, your sustenance, your strength, your grace, your mercy, your purpose, your hope, it's all we need. Help us to walk forth in obedience to you and to you alone. And when that next religious snake oil salesman comes our way, may we stand strong in the faith and say thanks but no thanks. I'm sticking with Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. If you're here today and you've never made a decision for Christ, we're going to invite you to make that decision as we sing this song of invitation. Maybe you're here today and you need prayer. We're going to invite you to come if you need prayer. We've got three that are about to be baptized in the next few minutes. I'm super excited about that. And so those of you who are going to get baptized today, you can make your way out the door and start to get ready. And those of you that may need to make that same decision or just need prayer or need to talk to someone about Christ or whatever it may be, let's stand together and you come if you have a prayer need or a decision for Christ today. And Alan... I'm going to ask you to come forward to help us pray as well. Thank you.